glossy and expensive, the series is a giant, faultlessly tasteful gift box filled mostly with packing peanuts. That's Inku Kang of Slate talking about the morning show, our feature review this time here on Cinephile. As well, Joe will contribute a guest review of The Boys, which is on Amazon Prime, the morning show, the big featured and very expensive jewel of Apple Plus. Uh, also, some entertainment news involving Mike Tyson fighting a shark, The Sopranos, and some blowback, plus just how well Greyhound is doing an Apple Plus and the Mount Rushmore of TV flops in honor of the morning show, getting some scathing reviews. In addition to that, Total Recall, we are nearing the end. 1994 Oscars, the films from 1993. As always, thank you for checking us out. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks so much to my friend Jim Miller. He was tremendous last week talking about Almost Famous, which I've now listened to all five episodes, and it's excellent, uh, particularly episode four, which is about the production. So that's uh, the Origins podcast on Cadence 13. Make sure you take a listen to that. And um, it's really good stuff. I, honestly, it doesn't even matter if you're a huge fan of Almost Famous. It's really interesting stuff as well. Uh, we got this review here on Apple Podcasts from Jaw10789. Always love the podcast since the ESPN days. Great listen when driving to work or on a long road trip. Adnan's reviews and passion for movies are unparalleled. His reviews are concise, insightful, and straight to the point. Only criticism is that Joe agrees too much with Adnan when discussing movie lists. All right, well, get ready for our Mount Rushmore today. I would like to see Adnan do some reviews with guests to get their take on best movies or previous award choices. Outside of that, love the show. Keep up the great work. That's an interesting idea, Jai10789. I can do that. I can ask a guest, hey, give me your favorite movie. Give me your Mount Rushmore or whatever topic we're doing. Thank you for the feedback, and thank you so much for listening. So we had an Apple free trial, Apple Plus, because uh, I had to watch Greyhound. So Joe hooked it up. So we reviewed Greyhound last week, obviously, on the podcast. Good film, Three Maple Leafs. And then I'm just diving into the morning show, trying to you know scurry to get these 10 episodes done. My son had a late, late baseball game, 845. Unbelievable. Under the lights. Getting home at 10.45 last Thursday night. All right, seven-day trial expiring at midnight. I'm cramming in the morning show, ignoring work, ignoring family, ignoring friends. And then Joe tells me Friday, hey, don't worry about it. I forgot to cancel the free trial. So we're good for another month. More Apple Plus. So you know what, Joe? Hey, we can now review uh, whatever the hell this Chris Evans show is called, Defending Jacob. I believe The Banker with Sam Jackson is there. We have plenty of Apple Plus content now coming to Cinephile for the next month. Yeah, I heard Defending Jacob was pretty good, too. And you, when you sent me that note that you were cramming it in, I felt so bad last Friday because I woke up and I was just, and, I, and, I, and I checked my emails and I thought, oh, oh crap, I forgot to cancel the free trial. So I'm glad you were able to get it in. If anything, I feel like it was motivation to finish the morning show. <laughs> it was a motivation to finish it, and clearly it wasn't one that I was necessarily enjoying. The morning show uh, debuted last fall. I'm sure you've heard all about it because Apple Plus paid a ton of money for apparently just gobs and gobs of money for two seasons of it. I don't know the exact numbers. I read somewhere $100 million for two seasons of it. I do know this. Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, $1.25 million per episode, and there's 10 episodes. So $12.5 million for Rachel Green's return to television and Reese Witherspoon, who was terrific in Big Little Lies. Here's another $12.5 million just for this show, just for one season. The reviews have not been kind, which is I had no real desire to see it. And uh, trust me, it's not that great a show. I I will stop short of saying it's a colossal flop because the show does get better as it goes along. But out of the gate, and most critics reviewed the first three episodes, there's a reason why it was getting scorched. 
You've heard about it. In case you don't know what it is about, the morning show begins. Everyone's phones, iPhones naturally, exploding in the pre-dawn hours. Alex Levy, Jennifer Aniston, arrives in the early morning dark at her network studio to learn that Mitch Kessler, Steve Carell, her 15-year partner in Waking America Up, has been fired for sexual misconduct. The morning show, you say, okay, well, this is based on the Today Show, right? And Mitch is obviously Matt Lauer. The series is actually loosely inspired by Brian Stelter's 2013 book, Top of the Morning, which focused mostly on the cutthroat battles of breakfast time television. And then Me Too erupted, and so now you feel like the show has become very different. They've got to include that. Obviously, how can you make a morning show and not talk about Me Too, especially when this show clearly looks like it's based on the Today Show? So of the many issues with the show is I don't think they really know what they're trying to do. Is it about a workplace environment and a TV show trying to fight the good fight? Or is it about Me Too and the subculture that enables this? So there's really not sure what they're trying to do. The worst part of the show, though, without question, is Bradley Jackson. That is Reese Witherspoon, a folksy reporter, the kind of independent conservative that a certain breed of progressive-ish show loves, who goes viral for aggressively fact-checking a protester. It's about as ridiculous as it gets. She's just some small-town reporter, doesn't seem particularly talented, very feisty, goes off on this person. All of a sudden, the clip goes viral. They interview her on the morning show. Jennifer Aniston does the interviewing. And then the corporate executive, who is uh, rather entertaining, played by Billy Crudup, he says, you know what? I'm going to bring her into the fold. This is like you know a whole all about Eve kind of thing here. Pit one versus the other. Aniston figures I'll get the jump on all of them. And I'll name her as my new co-host, which is about as absurd as it gets. And maybe you're saying, maybe because I work in television, I'm sensitive to this, but seriously, some reporter who's not even like in a top 100 market, a reporter gets a job as a morning show anchor for the number one talk show in the country. It's about as outlandish as it gets. I know it's TV, but it's just stupid what they're asking us to believe. Uh, Of the many reviews that I'll be uh, poking through, James Ponowozik of the New York Times. At its core, the morning show suffers from the flaw of many a media workplace story. The belief that white-collar workaholism is inherently interesting. Its critique of morning talk, guess what? It's too fluffy and driven by ratings, could have aired any time in the Bryant Gumbel era. You could call this program Sorkinian, partly because it shares a TV news premise with Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, partly because of the walk-and-talk scenes that tell you these characters are smart and busy. It's Sorkin minus the sanctimony, but also minus the playful wit, which leaves you with what? Exercise. The best part of the show is Jennifer Aniston. Uh, She's excellent, playing a woman who has a reputation for being difficult. I mean, she's 50-plus. Carell tells her they're trying to push her out of the job. Again, having worked in TV, I've seen women like this. I've seen how cruel the industry can be in terms of being ageist and sexist. And I think she has a real vulnerability to her character while at the same time being flawed. I mean, she's sympathetic, but she's complicated. She may have enabled Mitch. Mitch was her partner. She knew he was having affairs. She knew uh, that he was being a bad boy, for lack of a better term. Did she know he was sexually harassing women? Maybe not. But maybe she could have said something. And now when Bradley comes in, clearly uh, you see this character uh, being threatened. And Alex now doesn't know what to do. Does Does she trust Bradley? Or is she handing her simply the keys to the car and allowing her to now replace the two of them, her and her ex-TV partner? Uh, there's also a producer played by Mark Duplass, who's just one of these totally stressed out zombies all the time. He's fine, although I think he belongs in a better show. Again, back to the review from the New York Times. Carell is good in his role, but he's in a bleak, toxic masculinity drama. Aniston is in a cutting corporate satire. Witherspoon is an inspiring underdog story. Billy Crudup, as a lizardly media exec, is in an off-brand succession. 
Which raises an interesting point. You're saying to yourself right now, okay, hang on a second. So one of your criticisms of the show is it's a bunch of white people doing white people things, taking it a lot more seriously than it is. It's pretentious and all that kind of stuff. But what about Succession, Virk? Hey, you love Succession, don't you? I don't see any diversity on that show. That appears to be a bunch of rich white people talking about rich white people things. And you would have a point, except for this point from Film Mafia and their review. HBO Succession is ludicrously wealthy characters based on real people, but their crimes aren't whitewashed and there is satire and true incisive skewering. The writing and direction on Morning Wars have no such bite. The characters are less compelling and it looks like less bad than their real-life counterparts. This is TV about the 1% made by the 1% and produced by the ultimate 1% company and it's simply less interesting than the true story it's ripping off. Like I said, I got through it. It was better as it went along because they started to focus exactly on Mitch's indiscretions. The best episode of the entire show, I thought, was uh, largely done in flashback. It showed when Mitch and Alex were together. So it actually explained why they had such good chemistry. And you see uh, how difficult it is to spot sexual harassment for someone to actually comment on it. I don't think, let me rephrase. It's not difficult to see it. It's difficult for someone to speak up. And you see the way Mitch was flirting with uh, other anchors. He's flirting with Alex. He's flirting with the makeup artist. Okay, it's a little bit of harmless flirting. He's the the big wheel, so to speak. Oh, wait, now it's going a little different level because he's suggesting they promote somebody not just on talent, but because he wants to get in her pants. And the character played by Guga and Bootha Raw, I don't want to give too much away in case you are going to sit through this thing. She's excellent. Excellent performance and an excellent character, somebody that you care for. As she gets terrorized by Mitch, I mean, there's one scene in particular where he puts the moves on her. It is about as creepy and as chilling as it gets because you realize for so many women, they're petrified in the situation. They don't know how to say no. And uh, it's horrifying what happens to them. And this type of abuse and this type of harassment has a lot of repercussions. Morning show initially created by House of Cards, Jay Carson, who based that show, as I said, on Brian Stelter. Um, but it kind of just goes all over the place. One thing you know is this. It cost a lot of money, so it's not going anywhere. I don't know how successful it was in terms of downloads, but Jennifer Aniston returned to television. She did well. I believe she won a SAG Award. The Emmy Awards are coming out next week. She's definitely going to get nominated. If Reese gets nominated, I think that's an atrocity. Carell, again, I think it's a decent performance, and he's certainly good showing you a guy who feels he's been wrong, right? His whole point, as he says when he's screaming, I didn't rape anybody. I didn't jizz in a plant. All I did was have affairs. Men since the beginning of time have been abusing their power and having affairs. Um, so he's a supporting actor, but obviously he's a leading man. So you feel like at times they want to show him more than they need to. I just thought as a character, again, he's, he's, there's not enough depth to him. Like basically he's a Matt Lauer type who feels he got screwed. That's it. That's not interesting. There should be at least some, okay, listen, I regret having affairs. I'm trying to reconcile my wife. You see his wife and his kids for one scene, then they're gone. That's it. So you don't have any appreciation for who he is as a character. He, he, he comes across in the show as having zero empathy for the women who he abused, zero regret, zero forgiveness. I think anybody in this situation might have just a little bit of kindness and decency, but no. In this case, he feels that everybody was complicit. If I'm going down, they're going down too, which I think those are certainly emotions you would have. But as a character, he's just so unsympathetic, especially when you see the behavior that he's done uh, to Gugu and Butha Ra's character, the town booker, Hannah. Uh, listen, it's only five bucks a month. I get it. You figure, hey, it's a crown jewel. It launched last November 1st. Why not? But I'm telling you, it's not a show that I would watch for the five bucks. I only did it because Joe obviously had the free trial, and that's why it made sense for us. Joe, did you take advantage of this free trial and watch the morning show? You know, I didn't 
after your initial messages of the morning show and how you were enjoying it when you're in the midst of it. Um, but I do remember when Apple first announced that this project was coming down the pipeline and it, it's, it seemed like even at that time that they were just banking on star power to push this show through. Um, my question for you is, you working kind of in that world, is it at least accurate, you know, when they're in front of the desk, in front of the cameras, camera two, producer in your ear, all of that, is that at least an accurate representation of broadcasting? Good question. Uh, the, the broadcasting scenes are decent. Yeah, the control room is fine. The producer at times is a little too chatty. Like, I don't think, I mean, they're never talking in my ear that much. We're just doing the show. Um, I also have a real quibble. Whenever you watch these TV shows about TV shows, they always have the stage banner saying, okay, in five, four, three, like that never happened. That doesn't happen since like the 1960s. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen since like the Ed Sullivan show. We have earpieces called IFBs and somebody's in our ear. And even then, like, they're not counting us down one by one. It's like, we're coming up in 10. Coming up in five, and that's it. Then you listen. Of course, you hear the animation. You hear the music to the open, uh, whatever I'm doing on MLB Network, on NHL Network, or at ESPN. So I, that's one of my quibbles. I think just P TV people, Joe, they love the idea of that five, four. Like, it's so dramatic, as if you're calling out to the world as it changes. Even a couple of times, you know, they don't have Alex and Bradley in their chairs. And they go, okay, guys, 30 seconds. There's no way you're not in your chair with 30 seconds to go. You're in there five minutes before at the least two minutes. There's one scene they're like, all right, 20 seconds to go. Where's Alex? I'm like, wait, you're going to go on national television, 5 million people, 20 seconds to go? You can't find the anchor? That would never happen in a million years. And everyone's just kind of milling about it as if nothing's going wrong. By the way, Alan Sepinwall, who's uh, obviously wrote The Soprano Sessions and a great critic, he, he had a funny review in Rolling Stone. He gave it two and a half out of five stars. He said it's hard to imagine an Aaron, because obviously people are comparing it to Aaron Sorkin, which again, TV shows, but TV shows never get it right. But this feels like it's going for Aaron Sorkin light. It's hard to imagine an Aaron Sorkin show with two female leads unless every episode was about the male supporting characters telling them why they're wrong about things. But um bum Like I said, if you're going to watch it, watch it for Jennifer Aniston. Watch it because it is a juicy storyline. Me Too is obviously a big topic right now. Me Too in the environment. How did TV shows handle it? But I'm telling you, Reese Witherspoon, this is going to be one of her worst performances. I mean, just... You know, in a real show, she'd be playing the perky morning news anchor. You know, you look at her persona from Legally Blonde and, you know, all the other kind of material. She's not even big little things. You know, she'd be the peppy news. For her to come on as, like, feisty and angry, and she just comes across as obnoxious. You know, she's this outsider who's trying to break up what Me Too believes. And it's just, it's hard to stomach, not only as a character and as an actress. I, she just comes across as a bit of a shrew rather than someone that's likable. Whereas Aniston's character, at least you can... You see the dimensions of her, and you can see the flaws with her, even though you root for her, because you realize her heart's in the right place. I just didn't think it was, you know, exceptionally well written. Like that review said, when you convert to succession, how well written that is. The morning show, it's much, much different in terms of its tone. So ultimately, it's not going away anywhere. But uh, I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs out of four. That sounds about right. Joe, are you going to have any interest in watching the show now that we have this free trial for the next month? Yeah, I'm going to check out the pilot. I'm definitely going to check out the pilot just to get a better a better taste of exactly what you're describing. I don't know if I'll go through all 10 episodes, but I definitely will commit to the pilot. Yeah, I was about to say, if you actually get through all 10, I would be Marty, mighty excuse me, impressed with you for that kind of effort that you're going to go through. Uh, you have a guest review. Before we get to some news, you've been telling me to watch The Boys, which I haven't watched yet. Please tell me about The Boys on Amazon Prime. So the boys on Amazon Prime, and I'll just give a, a little background to it. It's a fun and irreverent take on what happens when superheroes abuse their superhero powers rather than use them for good. 
It's the powerless against the super powerful as the boys embark on an, a heroic quest to expose the truth about the Seven and Vought, which is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that manages these superheroes. And this sh show for me, Adnan, was a show that a few friends had been recommending to me. I finally got around to watching it when I was bored one night, and it completely came out of left field. I was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. It is a superhero show, but that is, it is in no way tied to the MCU universe. It has uh, its tone, atmosphere, and pace couldn't be further away from that. Um, and it's a much more, I think, honest, real take, a gritty look at superheroes if they actually existed in today's world. And kind of what I mean by that is, you know, there's the Nolan Batman movies that were a gritty take on superheroes. Um, or if you ever watched the show Heroes, I thought season one did a pretty good job at that too. Daredevil or Jessica Jones on Netflix, I think tackles that pretty well as well. But this show is not made for children um, because it, it's very gory. It is uh, very sexual um, and it's very just dark, just a very dark show, show in general. Uh, I do like it, and just to give a little bit of background about it, it's this company, Vought, which is essentially the Avengers, and all these superheroes are managed, it's public perception and social media managed by Vought, so the public loves these people, but behind the scenes, they're jerks, they're animals, they're just terrible people, and you don't know, some people are terrible right from the onset, some people, it's kind of fleshed out as the series continues, there's this, um... One actress named Erin Moriarty, she plays Annie January, and she's this wide-eyed, you know, Midwestern girl who gets chosen, this is how the series begins, to be a part of one of the seven. And so she comes in, and she's really idealistic, and she quickly learns that the world isn't what it seems. Um, I cannot recommend this show enough. It, the tone and the atmosphere of it, they do a really good job laying out the characters you don't trust them you don't know who's good and the series starts with and this happens in the first 10 minutes of the series i'm not um, trying to give too many spoilers away this is also in the trailer to the show but the protagonist of the show sets out on his endeavor where he ultimately encounters the boys this group of people trying to take down these superheroes because he is with his girlfriend they're in their apartment and they're walking down the street. It's a very cute conversation. They're being adorable together. His girlfriend takes one step on the street. And then it's just a close-up of the protagonist's face. And it gets covered in blood. And then it zooms out. And his clothes are covered in blood. And he looks down. And he's only holding the severed wrists of his girlfriend. Because she, she exploded after one of the Vought, one of the seven characters the flash equivalent uh, a character who can run really fast he ran straight through her like a bug on a windshield and it's that kind of unchecked power because this person showed no remorse that sets off the story i cannot recommend the show enough i'm giving it three and a half maple leafs and i'd recommend it to everyone to check out it's a quick watch season two comes out over Labor Day weekend of this year. I'm very excited for it. It's, I think it's about eight episodes, and each episode is around 45 to 50 minutes. Cannot recommend The Boys enough. All right, Nick Allen of RogerEbert.com. The Boys fails to be truly subversive in ways that count more than just wagging a middle finger 
and Marvel CEO Kevin Feige. That's not his kind of review, but Matthew Destin of Slate says, The Boys is an expert deconstruction of superhero stories with an appropriately wintry view of institutional power, be it corporate, governmental, religious, or caped. Speaking of superheroes, and because the Emmy nominations are coming out next week, I'm going to binge watch Watchmen before next week. So I am three episodes in. I've got six to go. It's very, very good. Regina King, Jeremy Irons, Don Johnson. Again, I'm not a superhero guy, but as Joe was mentioning with the boys, that it's an untraditional superhero type show. Similarly with Watchmen, even though it's a superhero show, it's, it's got a lot more going to it. I almost feel like it's an insult to call a superhero show. It's much, much better than that. One other thought in the morning show, by the way, a couple of cameos. Mindy Kaling has a drive-by and the great Martin Short, one of my favorites of all time. He is in the show playing like a true sexual predator, a guy who's this ousted director who's done very bad things. I was just wanted to point that out because I love Martin Short. It's not enough of a reason to watch the show, but he is in a couple episodes, and it's fun to see him playing a terrible, terrible creep. Coming up next after the break, entertainment news, the Mount Rushmore TV flops, and Total Recall of the 1994 Oscars. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We all remember Mike Tyson taking a big chomp out of Evander Holyfield's ear. What if a shark did that to him? That's right. Mike Tyson versus sharks. Mike Tyson taking on a great white shark for the Discovery Channel's annual Shark Week next month. Tyson versus Jaws. Rumble on the Reef. Sunday, August 9th. Shark Week has been running since 1988, a week of programming dedicated to sharks. I believe it's always their highest rated every year on Discovery Channel. Tyson said in a statement, I took on this challenge to overcome fears I still deal with in life. I equate this to overcoming my fear of getting back in the ring at 54 years old. What's the money line, Joe? Tyson or the shark? You know, I'm going with the shark. I mean, I guess it depends how, how shallow the water is. How you know how fast his hand speed can be if it's you know being um, stopped by water? But I'm gonna go with the shark. It's in its element, and it 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 it's literally programmed to bite things. So I'm going shark. What about you? I'm gonna think the shark has the heavy edge. But listen, just like uh, you know, sometimes with boxing, you figure the smart money's going a certain way. The sharks have figured things out, at least in terms of gambling odds. Somehow Tyson will find a way to emerge. Maybe the shark is on the take. <laughs> the shark is taking a dive, I think, in this case. Literally. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully you've been listening to the same podcast I have, Talking Sopranos. It's tremendous. Great work by Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharippa, who played, respectively, Christopher and Bobby Bacal on the show. Uh, they were talking about, early on, they said, you know, HBO did not want, in the fifth episode of College, they did not want Tony to murder the snitch. And they said, there's no way a leading man never murdered someone before will lose the audience. And David Chase said, no, if he doesn't kill the guy, we'll lose the audience because that's what he does. Uh, they also found that you know people were upset about the character of Vito, who was gay, and his treatment of him, how homophobic they were. But as Imperioli said, these guys, that's their mentality. I think it would be a bigger horror to make them PC and cleaned up. I think it would be a big disservice to the audience. 
I think most people understand that. Most people know that these guys are criminals. They're not the brightest people in the world. They're not particularly educated. They have a lot of bias. They also pointed out people were more upset when Christopher accidentally inadvertently killed a dog. Season four episode, he was strung out on heroin. He sits on Adriana's dog. As Imperial, he said, fans take that very personal and get very angry. And Greyhound, which we reviewed previously here in Cinephile, Game of Thrones Beliefs, Tom Hanks' new film setting a record for Apple+. Plus. Um, it's a very short history of the streaming service, but the largest opening weekend release ever. Apple hasn't been forthcoming with the exact numbers, but it's thought audience figures for the movie, which dropped in July 10th, rivaled that of a theatrical box office release. So we can only imagine what it would have been like, but it also comes after Tom praised Apple for streaming Greyhound after the absolute heartbreak of realizing it wouldn't be released in cinema. So maybe more than uh, one person, Joe, following your seat and getting the uh, Apple Plus free trial. Oh, yeah, and I think that Greyhound was did what the morning show was supposed to do in the sense of getting people hooked through the free trial to check out one thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would think other free trials, it's okay, everything's available except for this. If you want Tom Hanks's movie, you're going to pay five bucks. So I think it was an excellent move by Apple Plus, and clearly uh, they roped you into paying five dollars. So there you go. Yeah, definitely. All right, that's our entertainment news. No guests this week. Now it's time in honor of the morning show, which is a misfire, the Mount Rushmore TV flops. Mount Rushmore. So there's lots of excellent choices here in terms of the biggest TV flops of all time. Um, let's give it up because I'm such a big Sopranos guy. So you say, okay, you know, you got to even it up a little bit here. Well, I love Dread de Mateo, but what a misfire it was for her when she was in Joey on NBC, starring Matt LeBlanc as he reprised his role as Joey Tribbiani from the hugely popular sitcom Friends. Friends fans looking to fill the void that Friends had left after it finished in 04. Joey was an absolute train wreck. I've never seen it for the record, but I just remember when it came out, seeing a couple of commercials for it and going, God, there's no way that's going to last. And no, it did not. Vinyl, again, I love Scorsese. Scorsese bias. Well, this is probably the worst thing he's ever made. Vinyl, in which he was the executive producer and I believe directed the first episode. This was on HBO. Bobby Cannavale, who I love. The network spent a lot of money on this project. Estimated it cost roughly $10 million per episode. Did not get off to a good start. Two-hour pilot episode, which I thought was unwatchable. I didn't even watch it after that, as most viewers did not return for the second and subsequent episodes. Vinyl is an absolute horrible production for Martin Scorsese, Bobby Cannavale, and many others who are much more talented and would, you think, expect a lot better. Cop Rock, Stephen Bochco, obviously also a disaster. If you don't know much about it, think about it. It's a musical with a bunch of singing cops. I mean, it's, it's one of the all-time brutal ones you got to look it up. Whenever, it's kind of like in movies when they use Ishtar as a punchline. They often use Cop Rock for TV. And for the final slot here, Joe, I've got two choices. I mean, I got three choices. I could have gone with Knight Rider, the remake, which lasted 17 episodes. Joni loves Chachi. Again, very famous. Horrific. I'm going to go with Caveman. One of the most expensive TV flops of all time. You remember the TV commercial for Geico with Caveman? For some reason, ABC thought a 30-second commercial would make a good 30-minute TV show. Caveman. One of the all-time worst. I'd love to include Father of the Pride, but I'm not going to get that in there. That was, I mean, that was after one of the Tigers mauled Siegfried and Roy. I mean, just a disaster. I'm not going to get Father of the Pride. I will stick with Joey, Vinyl, Cop Rock, and Caveman. I can't wait for your list. Oh, man. I can't. I just would have loved to have been in the meeting that pitched Caveman as the show and everyone going, yeah, 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 Caveman. That would be a great idea. That would be great. 
Um, I won't put that on my list, but I will first hard agree with HBO's vinyl. Um, it was just so over the top, so unrealistic and unaccurate to that era. And, you know, there, there's the scene in the end of the first episode where Bobby Cannavale, he's doing drugs in his car. Then he hears the New York Dolls playing at a DIY venue. And then the entire building collapses on them. And I'm thinking, the New York Dolls just die? I don't, you know, and so that would have been sad. So I would say HBO Vinyl. I'm also going to go with the Star Wars 1978 Holiday Special, which I have never seen, but from my understanding, and all my friends who are huge Star Wars nerds cite that as maybe the worst thing ever made from the song and dance to the characters to the plot. Everything about it was bad. And then I'm going to go with the Chevy Chase show, um, and that was his stab at late night that just utterly failed but my number one was the show that came out maybe two years ago called New Amsterdam. I believe it was an ABC show, but it was about, you know, it was your typical hospital drama. Um, this doctor coming in just because he wanted to help people, but corporate hospital, you know, uh, whoever runs that getting in the way of him actually helping people. So he has to go behind their backs to, you know, help someone with cancer, that kind of thing. It was just a real play, blatant um, play at your heartstrings. So I'll go with New Amsterdam, The Chevy Chase Show, Star Wars Holiday Special, and HBO's Vinyl. Excellent mention of The Chevy Chase Show. Also, The Magic Hour with Magic Johnson, just an absolute atrocity. Like those, <laughs> those talk shows just failing miserably. One other honorable mention, The Get Down on Netflix, musical drama directed by famous writer-director Baz Luhrmann. Colossal budget, around $120 million in total. Netflix could not even get it to a second season. When they're bad, they're bad. Now it's time for the good as we go with a little more Total Recall. Total Recall. All right, Total Recall. How many more of these do we have left, Joe? I feel like this might be the last one. Uh, we have one more after this. What's the last one going to be? What year? It's going to be uh, this past Oscars, 2020. Oh, great. Okay, so we'll talk about Parasite, The Irishman, and so on. Uh, that'll be next week, but here we go. Total Recall, the 1994 Oscars, the films from 1993. This was a juggernaut. This was Schindler's List dominating the competition. Best Picture was indeed Schindler's List. I think it was the right choice. Who else was nominated, though? The Fugitive. In the Name of the Father, The Piano, and The Remains of the Day. I like that they kind of went, you know, hitting different aspects here, different audiences. You know, The Fugitive, a great action movie. It's nice to see movies like that break through. A big blockbuster is nominated for Best Picture. In the Name of the Father, certainly a rousing story. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is tremendous, along with Pete Postlewith playing his father, you know, wrongfully imprisoned, etc. The Piano is more for art house audiences, Jane Campion. And The Remains of the Day, which is... Uh, Again, costume dramas are not my thing, but that's one of my favorites. If I had a number two choice, it would be The Remains of the Day, which I think is just a gorgeously rendered story. I love the book, uh, and I love the adaptation. I mean, Merchant Ivory, the way they do things is just at a different level. Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, wonderful, wonderful film. But it's got to be Schindler's List, right? I mean, this was Spielberg's epic. For years, to try to prove he could make serious movies uh, had failed when he had tried to do that. I mean, Empire of the Sun got decent reviews, but didn't do great box office. And for years, it was like, oh, well, Stephen can't be taken seriously. You know, he makes these incredibly influential and hugely commercially successful films like Jaws and 
uh, Indiana Jones and all the rest of it. But like, you know, when's he going to make a really serious film? Well, this was serious with a capital S. And one of the great years ever by a director, Jurassic Park, which featured cutting-edge CGI, was an absolute monster at the box office. And then he makes Schindler's List, arguably the best film of his career, about adult themes, certainly very personal to him, being Jewish and about the Holocaust and about Oscar Schindler saving lives. 1993, I mean, all, we might do that. Mel Rushmore for like director years. I'm telling you, Spielberg's 93 is as good as it gets. Schindler's List, the rightful winner. I agree with you. I, Schindler's List is incredible. So I will agree with you and say Schindler's List. All right, best director, Steven Spielberg. Again, no brainer. Was long deserved, long overdue. And again, just on merit, when you look at the other nominees, I think he was the most deserving. Who else was nominated? Jim Sheridan, in the name of the father. James Campion for the piano. James Ivory for The Remains of the Day, and Robert Altman for Shortcuts. Love this shout-out to Robert Altman, Shortcuts, a director who, listen, people lionize. He's never been particularly one of my favorites. I, I think Nashville is just horribly overrated. I've never got through McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but Shortcuts is one of my favorite movies up his. I think it's excellent, uh, smart, and funny. He weaves together all these different stories. I've actually read the Raymond Carver book, the little stories that they're written, particularly on The Gift, I think is a really good one about the baker. Uh, played by Lyle Lovett. Uh, Jack Lemon's excellent in that too. So uh, props to Altman for getting a nomination here. But got to be Spielberg. The fact that the guts to make a three-hour-plus movie about the Holocaust in black and white. I mean, the scene of the girl in the red coat is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, and as far as the director, you know, it's not showy. I don't think he's uh, doing all of his usual camera tricks, so to speak. He really kind of seduces you well with the camera, the way that Oscar Schindler is this very entrancing, enigmatic guy, especially early on. And then later on, has a conscience, tries to do the right thing. The scenes of violence are explicit but necessary, uh, particularly Ray Fiennes when he's, you know, on the balcony shooting people. I mean, it's just horrible. The scene of all the bodies being burned. It's uh, Listen, as a director, there's many, many shots and images that you can't get out of your head, including Ben Kingsley telling him, you know, this list is life. And even Schindler when he's breaking down and regretting, you know, I could have done more. It's, it's a beautiful film. It really is. How about Best Actor? Tom Hanks for Philadelphia. DDL, In the Name of the Father, Lawrence Fishburne, What's Love Got to Do With It, Anthony Hopkins, The Remains of the Day, and Liam Neeson, Schindler's List. I don't think it should have been Hanks. Again, this was you know his first breakthrough here. I thought he was excellent. And again, he showed a different side of himself. Spielberg showed a different side of himself. Hanks showed a different side of himself. Uh, it'd be easy to give it to DDL. Daniel Day-Lewis is amazing as Jerry Conlon. I'll I tell you what, Fishburne's amazing as Ike Turner. You talk about a good actor giving a great performance. Lawrence Fishburne is just scary as the sadistic Ike Turner. I would go with either Liam Neeson or Anthony Hopkins. You know what? I'm going to go with Anthony Hopkins. What the hell? I said he shouldn't have won for Sons of the Lambs. I think he should have won for The Remains of the Day. It's so hard as an actor when you've got to be inward. You know, Olivia used to always act from the outside in. That's what Hopkins is doing here. Method acting is the inside out, like Brando. And one of the hardest things to convey on screen is repression. It's much easier, I think, I think, what Pacino does in Scarface when he's so extroverted and emoting and screaming and yelling, and it still takes a certain amount of brilliance. But it's really hard to harness all the energy inward. And what Anthony Hopkins does as Stevens the butler, playing a quiet guy who observes the world around him, yet doesn't say anything, yet later on regrets it, is nothing short of masterful. You know, he's observing his master making critical moves regarding the war and how they should be doing more to stop Hitler and the Germans. And later on, he has to come to terms with the love of his life and the fact he's madly in love with Emma Thompson's character, Miss Kenton, and that he's never done anything for himself. 
He's a butler. His whole life has been a life of service and helping others, and he can't even help himself until it's far too late and it's far too emotionally devastating. Anthony Hopkins, The Remains of the Day. That's the one he should have won the Oscar for, not Sansa Lambs. Hopkins would be my pick. Well, if you're going to go Hopkins, then I will go Liam Neeson for Schindler's List for all the reasons that you said when you were talking about Steven Spielberg and his direction of it. Um, I, I love him in that movie. I will now have to watch The Remains of the Day, though. I've never seen it before. And if you're saying that that's the performance to watch of his, I have to go see it now. Oh, yeah. I think it's his best. I really do. And to your point about Neeson, you know, heroes come in all different shapes and sizes, right? He is not noble from the beginning. Ray Fiennes is the epitome of evil. Ben Kingsley's the epitome of good. And Liam Neeson's right there in the middle as Oscar Schindler, a guy who initially just cares about money. He's all about commerce. And uh, slowly but surely, he gains a conscience. And then by the end, you see just how shattered he is. And we wishes he could have done so much more. It's a, it's a very layered performance. Best actress was Holly Hunter in the piano. I got to be honest. I've never seen the piano. I know. Glaring omission by me. I can't even comment on it. I know she's supposed to be great in it. Critics went crazy for it. I've never seen it. But I like these other nominees. I've seen all the other ones. Who else was nominated, Joe? Angela Bassett. What's love got to do with it? Stockard Channing. Six Degrees of Separation. Emma Thompson. The Remains of the Day. And Deborah Winger. Shadowlands. Well, 93 was a great year for Hopkins. Not only did he do Remains of the Day, he also did Shadowlands, which is tremendous. He plays C.S. Lewis, who is in love with Deborah Winger, who's dying, I believe, of brain cancer. And she gives an excellent performance. I'm so glad she got nominated. But I'm going to go with Angela Bassett, a great actress for a long time. Should have been nominated for Malcolm X. Uh, Uncanny as Tina Turner. Great legs, great singing voice. You feel for her. It's heartbreaking. The abuse she suffers, the hands of Ike Turner. I thought it was an excellent biopic, probably one that doesn't get mentioned nearly enough. So I think she was carrying the torch of that movie. You can call this one incomplete because I didn't see Holly Hunter. But of the four of the five that I saw, I'd go with Angela Bassett. Number two, of course, would be Emma Thompson for Remains of the Day. You? Oh, I 100% agree. I love Tina Turner so much. Angela Bassett is incredible, and she nailed that portrayal of Tina Turner. I mean, she couldn't have done it without Lawrence Fishburne, to your point earlier, but... uh, yeah, I, I love that movie, and Angela Bass is incredible. I'll go with her. Awesome. Best Supporting Actor is Tom Lee Jones for The Fugitive. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Who else was nominated? Leonardo DiCaprio for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Ralph Fiennes, Schindler's List, John Malkovich, In the Line of Fire, and Pete Postlewaite in the name of the father. I do love Pete Possilwith. The scene where he says to, to Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, don't be lying to me when I can see the truth staring me in the face. I mean, he's, God, he's really good as Giuseppe Conlon. I tell you, Malkovich, you normally don't get nominated for playing a bad guy in like a straightforward action movie. Like In the Line of Fire is a really good action movie. That's not the kind of movie that normally gets recognized by the Academy. But Malkovich is just tremendous in that movie. I mean, the, the way he just tortures Clint Eastwood with this cat and mouse game is amazing. I, I almost want to go with Malkovich because, you know, he never gets... Again, those kind of performances don't get nominated. I don't believe John Malkovich will ever won an Oscar. But I will go with Ray Fiennes. I mean, God, he is just tyranny. I mean, he's absolutely evil incarnate. First scene where he's got that cold. and the, I mean, he's just so vile the way he looks at women, that, that stare of his. I mean, that was his first movie. He'd never seen Ray Fiennes before, and I don't know if he's ever been better than that. Although I do love The End of the Affair, as you know, after listening to last week's episode. My pick is Ray Fiennes for Schindler's List, but guy, I'd love to go with Malkovich. And by the way, early Leo nomination, amazing, playing the mentally challenged Army Grape. He's uh, very touching in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which is a funny movie and a sweet movie. Good chemistry. Him and Johnny Depp together. Darlene Cates is really good. I will go with Fiennes, but guy, I'd love to give it to Malkovich. 
You know, you and I are in agreement because I'm going to go with Fines too. Um, just for how how dark he is in that movie, evil he is in that movie. Um, but I'm looking over the list, and Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia. Do you think Denzel should have been nominated for Philadelphia for supporting actor? It's a good point. I don't know if he would have should have been nominated, but he definitely didn't get enough recognition for it. I mean, this was one of those years where, uh, you know, Hanks kind of stole the spotlight and hogged all the attention. But the, the, a case could be made, certainly, Joe, because Denzel, he's the key in the movie. He is initially is homophobic. You know, when Tom Hanks says he has AIDS, the way Denzel takes a step back, I mean, it's so well done because the audience at that time, 1993, was also taking a step back. They didn't know much about HIV and AIDS, and it was a new illness. This was the first big budget film about AIDS. Um, and it was important to have a character like Denzel who was kind of reacting with the whole audience was. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. You definitely could make a case. Maybe, uh, I don't know, those are awfully tough five. But, but yeah, I, he definitely deserves recognition of being mentioned. Best Supporting Actress. Again, I never saw it. Anna Pack on the piano. Who else was nominated? I saw the other four nominees. Holly Hunter, The Firm, Rosie Perez, Fearless, Winona Ryder, The Age of Innocence, and Emma Thompson, In the Name of the Father. I met Jeff Bridges at the Oscars a few years ago on the red carpet. And all I said to him was, hey, I know you're the dude and you're great, but I loved you in Fearless. What a movie. And he said, oh, thanks. It's one of my favorites, too. I wish you'd been nominated for that movie. But Rosie Perez was, and she's very good in it. I think most people think of her, white man can't jump. They don't realize she was Oscar nominated for Fearless. Uh, it's about a plane crash and the survivors, now they kind of overcome all of that emotion. I had no idea Emma Thompson was double nominee that year. That's shocking to me. She was up for Remains of the Day, which I love. And also in the name of the father. Totally forgot she was in that movie. And Holly Hunter, also a double nominee. This is going to be the only time ever in the Oscars. Pacino did that in 92. And it's very rare with Glengarry Glenn Ross supporting and uh, a Woman lead. But the fact that Holly Hunter and Emma Thompson were both double nominees, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, that's a hell of an anomaly. Having said all that, my pick is Winona Ryder. I've talked many times how much I love The Age of Innocence. Again, speaking of costume dramas, I don't like a lot of them. I like about two of them. And the two of them are this year, Remains of the Day and Age of Innocence. I think those are the two of the best ever. Winona Ryder playing Mae Welland, uh, the woman who knows, even though she doesn't reveal it, she knows her husband, Daniel Day-Lewis, is in love with Michelle Pfeiffer. She only reveals that she knows it very late in the movie in an absolutely brilliant scene. You think she's naive and sweet and coquettish, and in the end, she's an absolute shark. I love Winona Ryder as Mae Welland. I'd go for her in The Age of Innocence. I love that pick. I love Winona Ryder, too. Um, I, and I, if I'm not wrong, I think Anna Paquin was maybe 11 or 12 years old when she won Best Supporting Actress this year. I think it still is. I think she was nine. I think yeah. that she still holds the record for youngest uh, Oscar winner. But I'll go with Rosie Perez for Fearless. Um, she's incredible. And as a Puerto Rican, I like it when Puerto Ricans win. So. Yeah, I was about to say, I like the Puerto Rican angle. Good call there, Joe. Best original screenplay. Again, this is embarrassing. I've never seen The Piano. Jane Campion won for The Piano. Who else was nominated? Dave Gary Ross, In the Line of Fire by Jeff McGuire, Philadelphia, Ron Naiswainer, and Sleepless in Seattle by Nora Ephron and David S. Ward. Nora Ephron, the queen of romantic comedies, which is, of course, a genre I couldn't care less about, but congrats on the nomination. Uh, I'm going to go through the line of fire. What the hell? I mentioned earlier, action movies don't get mentioned. You know, very rare, right? Mad Max, Fury Road, won a bunch of Oscars. But normally, action movies don't get recognized. In the line of fire is a smart, clever screenplay. It's got Clint Eastwood playing a CIA agent who's over trying to overcome demons of the past. John Malkovich playing Cat and Mouse. Rene Russo. I love the flirtation scenes with Eastwood and Russo. They're very well written. Jeff McGuire. I'm going for that pick, In the Line of Fire. How about that? I like it. I like it. I'll go. I'll go with Philadelphia. Um, 
for everything you said, just the climate at the time, uh, Hanks's and Denzel's performances, it's a good story, it's an important story. I'll go with Philadelphia. All right, definitely a good pick there. And best adapted screenplay, Schindler's List, Steve Zalian, based on the nonfiction book by Thomas Kennelly. Then we have The Age of Innocence, Martin Scorsese and Jay Cox, based on the novel by Edith Wharton. In the Name of the Father, Jim Sheridan and Terry George, based on the autographical book, Proved Innocence by Jerry Collin. The Remains of the Day, Ruth Prower, based on the novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. And Shadowlands, William Nicholson, based on his play. Again, I'm glad Shadowlands got a couple nominations. At least, you know, some of the nominations are award. Remains of the Day, I've mentioned before, I love the book by Kazuo Ishigura and the, the adaptation by Ruth Power Javala is Faithful. In the name of the Father, man, I, mean, that's, I never read the original, so I can't say how good the adaptation is. Schindler's List would be the easy pick, but I'm going The Age of Innocence. I mean, I've read the Edith Wharton book. That's very hard, again, to convey repression within the milieu. I mentioned earlier Hopkins did it. In this instance, it's in New York, it's turn of the century, and it's Daniel Day-Lewis who's having an arranged marriage to, uh, you know, Mae Wellen to an old writer, and all of a sudden her cousin, Michelle Pfeiffer, enters the picture, and he can't control his emotions. And the first hour in particular is so well written by Scorsese and Jay Cox because they show how the society kind of determines people's actions. And in the second half, you realize that society, in fact, undermines people's actions, and the individuals have to sublimate their own emotions because of the society around them. Particularly the last 15 minutes... It's so well written where Daniel Day-Lewis meets up with his son, Robert Sean Leonard, of course, great in Dead Poets Society. And they go to Paris and he says, oh, we can go see your old old friend, the Countess Olenska, Michelle Pfeiffer, after Mae Wellen has now passed away. And the way that Daniel Day-Lewis plays that scene, not only the acting, but I think it really is a great script. Uh, When Robert Sean Leonard says, you know, we'll go upstairs. And he he says, no, just, I can't do it. And he goes, well, what should I say? That you're old fashioned and you insist on, you know, going up the flight of stairs rather than taking the elevator? And Daniel Lewis softly looks at him and says, just say I'm old-fashioned. That should be enough. The great scripts sometimes are not about overwriting, but about saying as much as you can with as few words as possible. Age of Innocence is a hell of a script by Scorsese and Jay Cox. That's my pick. I love that pick. I, If you're going to go Age of Innocence, I will go Schindler's List then. Um, for for you know the buildup of it, Stephen Zalian, amazing writer. It's more subdued. Uh, I'll go Schindler's List as my pick. Yeah, I mean, listen, that script, Steve Zalian's proven himself to be like one of the great screenwriters of all time. Of course, he wrote The Irishman, not only Schindler's List, he wrote and directed Searching for Bobby Fischer. He co-wrote Gangs of New York. So I'm glad that Zalian is an Academy Award winner, and there's no disputing the fact Schindler's List is a tremendous script. Because again, he has to show the evolution of these characters, how they go from one point to the other, and he shows... I mean, really encompassing history here. You don't want to, I mean, to tell the true Holocaust story, it'd be, you know, a 10-part miniseries. In a three-hour movie, it's very, very hard, but I think he juggles lots of different characters and storylines and does so in a way that's not only digestible, but also very, very impactful, particularly in the final 50 minutes is, uh, is absolutely heartbreaking. All right, that was a great, great year for movies, 1993. I hope you enjoyed Total Recall. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cinephile. Please do follow us, Cinephile Pod, or individually at Adnan S. Furk. Next week, we'll review Watchmen, plus the Emmy nominations coming out next week. Let's go Rami. Let's go Better Call Saul. Let's go Succession. Uh, I don't think Barry's eligible, but uh, there's lots of shows that we'll be pulling for. And Joe's saying, let's go the boys. All right, watch that as well on Amazon Prime. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.